The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Financial Excellence with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. Host and moderator Bonnie D. Graham talks with the experts about how game-changing technologies can help you achieve financial excellence for your company. Now, here's Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And if you want to run with the Game Changers, you are in the right place. Today's buzz, predicting profitable performance. A little alliteration there. Let's get started. Yes, we now have sophisticated business intelligence tools. What do they do? They enable you to analyze big data and the renewed popularity of profitability and costing analysis. It's back. However, don't get all excited yet. Many companies still can't even get a grip on solving fundamental planning inefficiencies. That's a problem. And many are still unable to rebound from the pressures caused by recent economic instability. You know what we're talking about. If you're among these companies for any of these reasons, reasons, it's time for your finance organization to rethink how they approach data and to rethink the basics of their role in the business, a very important topic. So we have a couple of bottom line questions today. Number one, who should own profitability? That's a big one. And who should be responsible for identifying and implementing the best practices to help you build a more profitable future? A lot of meat on the bones there. I've assembled a wonderful panel. They're smart. They're ready. They can't wait to share their expertise. And they've sent me some very fascinating quotes from famous people. But, of course, my panel is famous, too. Let's get started by three experts today. And leading the charge is Gary Koch, no pun intended, Gary Kokens, founder of Analytics-Based Performance Management, very appropriate for our topic. And Gary sent me a quote from Leonardo da Vinci. I'll read it. There are three classes of people, those who see, those who see when they are shown, those who do not see. Very provocative. Gary Kokins, how are you today? Good, Bonnie. <laughs> I like that. we got to paint that on the side of a bill. That's graffiti-worthy. Gary, where are you calling from today? From Raleigh, North Carolina. Oh, how's the weather down there? Are you enjoying sunshine like we are here in New York? I'm a Chicago native, so it's nice having four moderate seasons here. Okay, very, very good point. Gary, you picked Leonardo da Vinci. Interesting quote, the three classes of people. Talk to me, why did you pick this for your opening provocative quote, and how does that relate to our topic of predicting profitable performance? Go ahead, Gary. Well, one of my frustrations, and I'm in my mid-60s with a long career, is the slow adoption rate of the various methods to produce uh, these reports and analysis. I know we will talk about this at greater length. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I saw that quote, I said, you know, there are some CFOs and controller accounting organizations that get it right off the bat, um, but the resistance to change or just the slow recognition that they need to basically measure uh, profitability, not just by product and service line, but by channel and customer, has really been a surprise to me. So I'm, I'm sure we will talk about this at length later on. 
Gary, have you seen any uptake in terms of the number of finance professionals who are starting to get it? Are there any any trending you can observe at this point, or is it still just sluggish? Well, I think you can put CFOs or controllers or cost accountants on sort of a distribution curve where you've got laggards mm-hmm. and leaders, you know, and the laggards are kind of still, comp- you know, focusing on compliance and reporting and regulatory reporting and financial accounting. Um, but then I think there is uh, an increased interest in um, the more progressive uh, types of uh, managers that are producing better information for their managers. Um, so I think, and I think just the, the margin for error is getting slimmer and globalization is creating competition. So they, the short answer is yes, there is a shift of attention for the topics we're going to talk about today. Good. And I have one more question before I bring in our second guest. You brought up the issue of, uh, shall we say, generations or age, that very bad word, Gary Kokins. You brought it up in reference to your career. And so my question is, is it age or generationally related who the leaders are versus the laggards? Are the younger generation coming up through the finance organization, are they more excited about the tools, more excited about gripping this and making a go of it and, and becoming more strategic to the business? Or is it across the board, regardless of generation? What have you observed? I think it's the younger people get it more, but also there's some aspects. The younger generation are more technical savvy, uh, but also I think the younger generation is looking to how to get promoted, and ah. um, it's more competitive, and I think what they're always seeking is, uh, you know, can I learn a little bit more from uh, experts or from reading articles? So I think they're just more open to uh, learning and understanding. Very good point. Thank you very much. Let's turn to our second panelist today, John Essig. He's a CPA, and he's with Optimal Solutions, and John sent me a quote from Galileo. We're a very good company with Da Vinci and Galileo here. I feel like I'm starstruck already. The quote John Essig sent me is the following, measure what is measurable and make measurable what is not so. Welcome, John Essig. How are you today? Where are you calling from? I'm doing great, Bonnie, calling from Chicago, Illinois, so actually uh, two of us come from the same place today. How are you? You're in, I'm fine, thank you. You're in Gary's hometown, so talk to me. Interesting Galileo quote. Measure, of course, relates very specifically to our show. This series is Financial Excellence, so what are we measuring and what should we make measurable, John? <clears throat> right, so I mean, it, exactly what we're talking about, profitability, right? So, I mean, I'm I'm very, very passionate about passionate about, you know, the topics today, early adopter, an architect, and a, and a little bit of a, of a younger guy, I might add. <laughs> so very, very interested in, in big data, uh, predictive analytics, and, and really how you apply that to finance. And where this, this quote comes in is, is measuring what is measurable. Um, big data gives us the ability to get, you know, information from a lot of different systems, your point of sale, your CRM, historical data, right? But then it's, what can you actually do with this data? And that's how looking at ways you can measure it and apply it to the future to best, you know, to best benefit from that um, is, is particularly salient to this conversation. Thank you, John. Going back to my last comment with Gary Kokins, you're on the panel, Joe. I just introduced him. Uh, do you agree that the younger generation coming up through the finance organization is more excited, that you also want to protect your future of your jobs, but that you're more willing to be open to these new tools and, and more about what big data can do for your company? Yeah, definitely. I, 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 certain, I certainly agree with that. You know, I'm, I'm, 31 years old, so I might be a, I could be a case study for Gary, maybe. <laughs> not, not, a, not super young, but I even see with the, with the generation, you know, coming right out of college, a little bit younger than me, 
um, even even more of a desire than my generation to do it. Right? They 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 grew up on computers. Um, mm-hmm. They grew up with these different technologies, and they're and they're certainly much more open. The other thing that I that I would mention as well is that that technology, while it's been around and the methodologies have been around for a lot of for for many years for data scientists and, and others who really have that statistical background. Now, you know, a lot of the tools in the last few years, I think, are going to put um, these methodologies within the reach of finance. So I think it, you know, I think it is kind of coming of age, not just because of the, the personnel, but also, um, you know, the tools are getting easier and easier to use. You need less expertise. Um, mm-hmm. and it, you know, it's, it's, it's much more within the reach of the finance organization. Thank you very much, John. Good insights. And let's welcome our third panelist today. It's Rob Jenkins at SAP, who sent me a quote from Niels Bohr. This is very interesting. Prediction is very difficult, especially about the future. I think there's a tautology or some kind of contradiction or maybe even an oxymoron in there. Rob Jenkins, welcome to the show. Where are you calling from today? Hi, Bonnie. Kansas City. All right. We've got to have a song around that one. Oh, I think we already do. So you picked this Niels Bohr quote. Talk to me. Prediction is very difficult, especially about the future. Isn't that what it is? You know, it, it really does have a Yogi Berra quality about it, which I mm-hmm. really liked. It is succinct. You know, it's profound. No one has a crystal ball. It would be worth billions if you could really predict the future. And mm-hmm. perhaps some of the finance uh, folks out there, the CFOs, are a little bit cautious about predicting the future and about actually making forward-looking statements, and they're a little bit cautious in that regard. But this is, uh, you know, this is what analytics brings. The past relationships of data really do give you insight into the future, and so we'll talk a lot about that today. I'm sure you know Shakespeare wrote, "The past is prologue," and of course, Twain here from Kansas City, Missouri, or at least close to Missouri, mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, it does not repeat. History does not repeat, but it does rhyme. So we're <laughs> going to talk about that. Can you predict the future? What, do, what does analytics bring to the future? And how perfect for our topic, predicting profitable performance. But I have to add, we're looking at it in challenging and turbulent times, just so our listeners know. Guess what? It's time for our little icebreaker segment right now, the coffee break. And by the way, uh, to Rob, we do have a crystal ball here on SAP Game Changers Radio. And that's what we'll do in the last 10 minutes of the show. Ask you, Gary Kokins and John Essig, to look ahead and Draw that line in the sand, make a stake, take a stand, and say, what do you think will happen in the next five or six years in terms of our topic today? But for right now, let's look right into not the tea leaves, although perhaps that will be it, the what's in your cup today or what do you wish you were drinking. Let's circle back to Gary Kokins. Gary, what are you drinking or what do you, what would you like to be, rather be drinking? Well, my, I'm going to answer kind of a variation on your question, and it relates back to Chicago. Um, I grew up there, and my, I'm Greek-American. My parents had a delicatessen for 25 years, classic Greek mm. deli. And we lived in a little apartment above my dad's store, and he would go down. It was open from 6 a.m. to 10 p.m., seven days a week. Wow. And one of, after, when he would come down later in his life, there was always this guy, Chester, who would be sitting, waiting for my dad to open the door. And so my father finally said, you know what, let me, here's the keys. You go in, don't turn the lights on, and you make the coffee. And when my father would come down later in the morning, there would be six or seven customers uh, already drinking coffee made by Chester. And, but I think there's an interesting point here, and it has to do with mm-hmm. trust, where a proprietor can actually trust, have a relationship with customers, that they can trust them to actually open the store. 
I like that. And I still have to ask you, what's in your cup? What kind of, what's your favorite coffee? Come on, you must have a flavor. Is it high test or decaf? Like I can only drink decaf. What, what, what's, what really gets you going in the morning? What kind of coffee? I'm, I'm just a learn to drink it black with no cream, no sugar, and just whatever. I don't even know the flavors, just whatever is basically the strongest. Start I my knew heart. I. I knew I liked you when I met you. Good, good. That's me too. The darkest, just plain, and I even put a little less water in the Keurig so it really comes out strong. But caffeine-free, that's the only way I can roll. John Essig, what are you drinking today, or? Yes, thanks, thanks, Bonnie. And actually, uh, we, we, I feel like we may be predicting the future, or maybe I'm looking into my future with, with Gary, as I'm also a, a black coffee drinker. Uh, no cream, no sugar. Prefer prefer Starbucks or a you know a good a good dark blend. Um, that's what I like in the mornings. When I've been drinking quite a bit uh, on my leisure time lately, since we're you know talking a lot about Chicago again. That's where I'm from. There's a great brewery here called Revolution Brewery. Um, mm. It was actually featured in a in a movie called Drinking with Buddies. If if anyone has seen that, you'll see that oh. that was in um, in actually the the brew pub and brewery there. And there's a, for all those beer lovers out there, there's a great beer called Antihero IPA, which I am just a, a big <laughs> fan of and, and typically always have, you know, always have in my fridge. So um, obviously not drinking that this morning, but. <laughs> right after the show, you have our permission. Thank you. Great story. And Rob Jenkins, what are you drinking today? Or? I like espresso. So I drink double espressos. I may have a few double espressos every morning. I've got a little machine here and it sounds like a very small aircraft taking off. My wife tells me it's far too early in the morning, but I am addicted to espresso. So that's what I drink. A couple of espressos in the morning. Wow. Talk about high test. That'll certainly fuel you and get that brain power going. Guess what? I'm going to give the three of you a break. You can go have a sip of something good. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. You're listening live to Financial Excellence with Game Changers Radio, presented by SAP. If you're keeping track, this is Season 2 for Financial Excellence, and this is Episode number 8. So there, we're live. It's Monday, April 28, 2014. Where is the year going? Our topic today, predicting profitable performance in challenging times. We'll be right back after the break. Don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, or that dial. A lot more coming. When we come back, we'll start our 30-minute non-stop roundtable. My panel's going to put their seatbelts on and take a sip of something high test and get going. So we'll be right back. Michael, out! When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Unleash the leadership potential of your finance talent now. Your business needs more than just compliant reports. Today's leading finance departments are asked to support business decision-making to help companies to succeed. With SAP's Risk and Finance Solutions, you can provide the advisory that decision-makers are looking for. No matter what data source, no matter where you are, you can find the information you need to add value. Give your finance talent the right tools to be up to the challenge. www.sap.com 
The time for enterprise mobility is now, according to IDC. By 2013, over 1.19 billion workers worldwide will be using mobile technology, comprising 34.9% of the workforce. The impact of mobility on business is clear. Increasing numbers of business users are expected to handle critical tasks and decision-making in real time, no matter where they are. SAP and Sybase and SAP Company offer mobile applications and underlying infrastructure with integration to SAP systems for secure access to business processes anytime anywhere and on any device www.sap.com from the boardroom to you voice america business network welcome back to financial excellence with game changers presented by sap comments questions send an email to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com and you're invited to tweet during and after the show at hashtag SAPRADIO now let's get back to financial excellence with Game Changers here we are welcome back I'm speaking today with Gary Kokens founder of analytics based performance management and John Essex CPA at Optimal Solutions and Rob Jenkins at SAP we're ready to launch into our nonstop roundtable for about 30 minutes here going to kick off the party with Gary Kokens and I'm going to read the following statement Gary sent me before the show and then we'll have him start and ask our other panelists to chime in so Gary says as customers increasingly view suppliers product and services as commodities, thus neutralizing any competitive advantage, which makes sense, suppliers must provide differentiated offers or services to differentiated customer segments. But here's the caveat from Gary. Few companies properly measure the profit levels from their customers. A lot of meat on the bones there. Gary, why don't you get us started, please? Yeah, just to, I guess, repeat, I do think that there is this... um, customer view of suppliers as being commodities. And the problem is many uh, CFOs and financial systems will report product or standard service line profitability. And I'm sure we're going to get a little bit later that even that they tend to basically calculate it improperly with these uh, allocations, these broad cost allocations of indirect and shared expenses, which are getting substantially larger relative to direct costs. But, but, but aside from that, they really need to start basically reporting below the gross profit profit margin line for channel-related costs and customer-related costs. And here's the reason why. Sales and marketing, primarily, what their objective is, is really increase market share uh, or just increase sales. But when you basically do a lot of analysis, and, and earlier in my career I did a substantial amount of activity-based uh, costing, you discover that you can have highly profitable and highly unprofitable uh, customers independent of sales. It's just because they're high demanding, uh, mm-hmm. shifting schedules, not buying standards, calling help desk, returning goods, and the like. And so we need to close this, what I consider the wide gap between the chief financial officer and the chief marketing officer, because the key is marketing has to answer the question, what types of customers do we basically retain? Do we grow? Do we win back? Or do we acquire? And which types not? But further, which, how much should we optimally spend on acquiring or retaining or growing customers? And marketing and sales basically operates independent of having the financial information. So I think we're going to have to see that gap get closed by uh, finance and accounting function providing more and better information about customer profitability levels. 
good points. John Essig at Optimal Solutions. You want to add to that, please? Yeah, no, I, I think that's a, a great point. And, you know, what I've seen organizations really go towards is, is wanting, you know, having that desire to see that full profitability, right, by customer, by product, so that they can do analysis and look at what, what customers what do they want to focus on? What customers do they want to drop? What, you know, what make, making sure that the investment that the marketing team is putting in um, is really, you know, allowing the organization to see the returns that are desired. Okay. Rob Jenkins? Yeah, one comment. Many, many firms, as Gary pointed out, you know, measure gross profit by product. Very accurately, those expenses are assignable, and they don't really take a lot of uh, art and judgment around uh, allocations or attributions. So getting to a fully absorbed uh, profit view by product or by customer, is uh, it takes a lot more judgment and a lot more machinations, and it really is worth the effort, but we don't see a lot of uh, firms doing that. A lot of firms want that, uh, but it is, uh, I think it's uh, the stretch objective for a lot of finance functions. Thank you very much. Gary, you want to round out that topic because I'm ready to move into some of the talking points from John Essex. So anything else you want to say on that? Well, first I'll debate Rob just a little bit, if it's okay Please. to have the panelists argue here. I <laughs> love it. I love it. Go for it. No chairs. Don't throw I any think, chairs, I though. I think even even for the gross product profit or standard service line for, like, banks or insurance companies, they still misallocate, though indirect, uh, by violating the causality principles. So they use these broad allocations. Um, but aside from that, I think um, Rob's point is is spot on. There's still not enough of them are going below the gross profit margin line. Or if they do do customer profitability analysis, like a one-time study because the executive team kind of wants to know, as opposed to having a permanent repeatable production system uh, that can be provided by today's uh, technology software vendors such as an SAP. Rob, anything no, to no, come ab- back? Absolutely. And, and, you know, it's really in the mind's eye of the finance functions. Mm-hmm. When you ask them what they want, it is, you know, more often than not, it is fully absorbed operating profit by product, by customer, by geo, by channel. And when you ask them what they have, they will tell you they have accurate profit by product. No, I'm sorry, gross profit by product. Just gross margin by product. And and that is really the uh, the gap in their own mind about, you know, and the, a lot of the questions come up, well, how do I get to customer profitability? And they really do want it. Now, as Gary knows and John knows, you know, there's uh, 25 years of literature out there. There's a whole body of knowledge out there as to methodology. How do you, how do you accomplish customer profitability? You know, what are techniques like activity-based costing? Of course, there's a whole lot of new tools out there as well. So it is very doable. It is doable. That's the good news. I want to move into yeah, and, some talking. I, yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry, mm-hmm. Bonnie. This is, this no. is John. And I would just add yeah. on to there that, it it is doable, but it's not it's not easy to do overly accurately, right? Because we can we can take those those expenses and we can allocate them based off of a few different metrics, volume, revenue, etc., right? But we can't get down into the weeds and and easily allocate based off of other metrics, like you know, as Gary said, how often how often is a customer you know hitting the helpline? Um, so so there are a lot of other metrics that we be would like to be able to use. Um, to help, you know, drive those accurate allocations. Uh, and right now, I think we're left with some more higher-level assumptions, which certainly allow us to manage the business, but maybe is why um, companies are hesitant to invest in it a little bit. 
Thank you, John. And guess what? I was going to ask you to look at some of the talking points you sent me before the show. I want to move into the area of big data and how finance organizations are or are not relating to it. So let me read a little bit from what you sent me before the show, and then why don't you kick off this part of our roundtable. You said, what is big data? For finance organizations, big data can seem intimidating or a bit of a mystery. And I'm interested about the bit of the mystery rather than just, what? You say, everyone's talking about it, but no one can quite define it. And then I'm going to quote you. You say, John Essex says, I've talked to senior level finance executives who privately snicker as they don't know the application. Simply put, big data essentially means data sets too large for traditional processing and requiring new processing technologies. A lot to talk about. Why don't you kick this part off? John Essex, please. Great. Thanks, Bonnie. So I I think the the answer, like you said, to what is big data is, is really pretty simple. It's the ability to pull from all these different sources, our, our point-of-sale systems, our, our CRM systems, macroeconomic sources. We have so much data available to us now. Um, so that, that to me, is, is that combined with the ability to actually process that information um, with some of the new in-memory computing capabilities is really what big data is. But... Knowing what big data is doesn't necessarily give you the ability to actually benefit from it, right? So just returning millions and millions of rows, you know, onto an Excel spreadsheet or, or, in, or you know, through HANA or with some of these new tools um, is impressive. It's definitely impressive, but finance people look at that and say, okay, but, but what do I but what do I do? <laughs> you know, what do, what, do, what do I do with that? So what I think that the gap that needs to be filled and some of these new technologies, their prepackaged algorithms and other things are, are going to help fill that gap is now that I have the data, what do I do with it? How do I make it valuable? How do I look at this data as an asset that can be mined um, to increase profitability, to improve my forecasting planning process? So that's that's the gap that I'm really passionate about helping helping organizations to fill and understand. Thank you, Rob Jenkins. Thoughts? Yes. Well, you know, we absolutely see so many firms that are they're thinking about uh, you know how do I make money? Uh, how do I create uh, compliance and transparency? And this new world of data, machine to machine data, social data, clickstream data, texting data, location based data. They are just fundamentally not, I think, uh, you know, ready for uh, how, does this, how is this meaningful to affect my business process and how does it affect uh, my financial performance? You know, I think it's a brand new topic. We're excited about it for sure. Okay. Gary Kokins, thoughts? Well, there's this common reference to big data as having the four V's. Well, starting off the mm-hmm. three V's, which is volume, variety, and volatility. And more recently, I've seen value as being added as the, as the fourth V. Um, I may debate uh, Rob a little bit. I think that the marketing world has embraced big data because they really do seek now quite detailed information at the customer level, transactional level, you know, recency, frequency, uh, spending level, and the like. Um, I think the issue is that the CFO function is a few years behind 
the marketing and salespeople. They are already, as Rob used some examples, Clickstream, uh, that's sort of in the digital world, but even just sort of the basics, you know, uh, CRM, uh, customer relationship management type data. Where is the customer? Where do they live? That's on the B2C, the business to consumer, even on the B2B and the supply chain. Uh, marketing and sales has a substantial amount of information. I'm going to come back to my point. The issue is, are they growing sales? Are they growing profitable sales? How do we start injecting kind of a mindset that is really about return on customer and trying to view customers as an investment? Because in the end, you've got you to connect the enterprise to the shareholders, and I don't think there's enough of a connection between sales and marketing and shareholder wealth creation. I think big data, they are, they are definitely, the marketing and sales is definitely on uh, top of or getting on top. Well, they're, gra- you know, in the terms of stages of maturity, getting on top of it. But uh, the CFO function, I think, is lagging behind. Yeah, totally agree. You know, marketing for probably, what, seven to ten years has been all over uh, big data with respect to uh, digital marketing and, and acquiring customers and upselling and cross-selling on the Internet. So there's no doubt about that. In finance, of course, we believe there's lots of finance business processes that can be impacted and improved through the use of big data and analytics, for example, receivables and inventory management and fraud prevention, and, and so in, including revenue forecasting using things like CRM systems. So it is really applicable to finance, but as Gary says, I think CFOs are perhaps still trying to figure out what do they do with all of this data. Who's going to educate them? Who's going to get them on the path and turn the laggards into leaders at any generational status, any maturity of the finance organization and or the company itself? Whose job is that to bring them up to speed? If it's lagging, why is it taking so long? Gary? That's a question I keep asking myself, which is kind of like who owns the mm-hmm. the rate of adoption of this? Is it, it's, I don't believe it's going to be IT. I think CIO are beginning to be viewed more as a service provider, uh, kind of keep the lights on, batch processing, and, and so forth. The analytics community, which is growing, you heard reference earlier to data scientists. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, one of their, uh, there seems to be two opposed or two con- con- contrasting methods, which is open to develop a center of excellence for analytics. And so you have like some gurus, and then they basically go out into the organization to help. Uh, the other method is really get some quick wins, get some, uh, d- you know, discoveries and examples. Uh, so show, you know, did some victories and then the adoption rate, the recognition, how to use data analytics will, you know, will expand from there. So I don't know that question. I think that's going to be mm-hmm. maybe our crystal ball or 2019 at the end of the show. You know, who's going to really have successfully uh, mo- motivated and driven the adoption of analytics? Could be. Anybody else want to chime in on that? Because I'm ready to move into a, a very related topic. Rob Jenkins, will you allow me to read one of your talking points here? Please do. You bet. We're talking about finance hey, actually, skill Bonnie, sets. Is, yep. Bonnie, yeah. Go John. ahead, John. If you wouldn't mind me chiming in. Just Not on at that, all. On that, on that gap, right? Because I think that gap goes back to what's measurable. So it's, it's much easier for, for sales team and for the sales organization to jump on board with big data, predictive analytics, you know, targeted marketing, getting an understanding for, you know, how they can really use this functionality, use this, you know, use data scientists to, to um, you know, maximize their sales, right? So that, mm-hmm. that's very measurable. It's easy to see the benefit that they're getting out of it. I think one of the biggest gaps, um, there are, you know, really kind of two, 
big drivers of that. One, a finance organizations tend to be risk averse group, right? So they're not going to be, you know, they're they're not typically your earlier adopters, and maybe that'll change over time, and, and I and I hope it does. But by kind of nature of that background, it's not an overly risk averse um, group of people, minus a few exceptions that we that we're all <laughs> that we're all very aware. Of. Um, but the second thing is is it goes back to to making it measurable and the sales, you know, the sales that come in from, from leveraging these tools is, is very measurable on the finance side. It's, it's much more to me about providing accuracy for your plan and for, forecasting processes about looking at how different drivers can impact your plan and predicting um, and, and really leveraging that big data. It's, it's not as easily quantifiable. You know, and when you do try to quantify it, you can make some assumptions, apply some percents, and show overall cost savings that, you know, a more accurate plan is going to provide. But at the end of the day, you've got to buy into the underlying assumptions to agree with the dollars. So, however, I, I think that as these tools make it easier um, for finance people to adopt, and it requires less and less, you know, really initial investment, bringing in, you know, big teams of data scientists and consultants isn't as required as much. You know, you can you can use a lot of these t- tools out of the box, and I think it's going to increase the finance organization's willingness to to take this on and look at it look at it as an investment. I heard somebody in the back who wanted to say something. Was that you, Rob or nope. Gary? We good? Okay. I want to bring in a comment from Rob, and then I'm going to go to one of your talking points. Rob told me in his notes, he said, we often hear that the sexiest jobs of the future are, wait for it, wait for it, Gary, you still may be part of this, data scientist or software engineer, and no doubt those will be in high demand. Rob, you want to talk to that for a second before I move in a different area here? Absolutely. So, you know, you you often see on these websites, you know, what uh, should you be recommending to your uh, teenagers to become in life from a career Mm -hmm. standpoint? Uh, and data scientist does often pop up as a number one. Uh, and so my, you know, assur- certainly my assertion is that uh, I think data science and understanding analytics, at least at a high level, is going to be critical uh, for a lot of job functions, including accountants and finance professionals out there as they not only deal with improving and optimizing finance business processes, but also becoming a true strategic partner to the business, uh, knowing a little bit about data science. How do you capture data? How do you manage it and store it and analyze it mm-hmm. for insights and improvement of decision-making? My, uh, my prediction is clearly that uh, finance and accounting are not going out of style. There's going to be great career paths of the future, but they will be changing. Just like we adopted uh, you know, technology 20 years ago in auditing and finance for reporting and, anal- and analysis, this is a whole new era of analytics going to infuse itself into finance and accounting. Great points. Thank you. We did do a little bit of predicting there, but we're going to have to get more from you in the final round. I want to turn to another area of talking points from you, Rob Jenkins. You're talking about what to measure. Interesting, you talk about an SAP benchmarking survey that looked at performance measurement strategy and indicated the plurality of companies surveyed used between 100 and 200 performance measures. And then you note not exactly the vital few, but indeed the trivial many. Talk to us about that. When was this study done? And, and give us something that... Uh, your co-panelists can talk about, please. Sure, you bet. So back in 2012, we actually looked at over 300 firms, and uh, the the question was real simple. How many performance measures do you primarily use? And, uh, you know, the results were amazing. 
uh, the, they were amazing. Uh, most companies, not most, certainly the plurality is between 100 and 200. And believe it or not, 11% of firms use more than 200. So uh, there's a little bit of uh, you know, a collector mentality, perhaps, by some. It is truly, as Dr. Duran noted, you know, the trivial many versus the vital few. If you can just articulate and delineate strategy and be able to measure it with, let's say, 10, 20, 25 measures, perhaps, mm-hmm. that you can actually create you know, initiatives around and become actionable. Uh, we think certainly that's more in the direction of best practice than something uh, north of 100 to 200. Gary, thoughts? Yeah, this is yeah, this is Gary. This is something I also feel somewhat uh, passionate about. And I mean, maybe we need to broaden their description today about just uh, profitability and, and management accounting to enterprise performance management, which is really a mm-hmm. collection uh, and integration of multiple methodologies, including balance scorecards, strategy maps, and the like. And here, here's the point, uh, reinforcing what Rob said. I, too, in my career, you know, have spent time, because I, in the middle of my career, was consulting Deloitte, KPMG, and the like. And you'll ask organizations, oh, how many KPIs do you have your balance scorecard? And you'll get this answer, like 200, and say, well, that's great. How can they all be a K? How can they all be a key performance indicator? And I think the issue here is to start distinguishing the difference between key performance indicators and just performance indicators. They're both types of measures. They're both important, but they serve different purposes. And I just like to use the definition that key performance indicators, which really should be displayed in a scorecard associated with the strategy map methodology, the definition is monitoring the progress towards accomplishing the strategic objectives. So the KPI should really be about strategy execution, where in contrast, all those other PIs, which are valuable and they serve a purpose, they're much more about measuring, uh, you know, perf- measuring a process or, or some sort of feedback. So key here, I think, is starting to distinguish KPIs from just operational PIs. John Essig, thoughts on that? Very provocative from Gary. Uh, it, well put. I mean, the, the only other thing I'd add on to this is there, there are still a fair amount of firms out there that haven't, haven't adopted this at all, right? They, they look at their key financial statements, and beyond that, not a lot of different metrics to help them drive the business. So I think there's, there's still a, a gap there. It, it seems to be uh, nothing at all or way too many, and not a, <laughs> not a, not a whole lot of people are, are right in the middle where they need to be. Well, this All is, over this the place. Scary. I mean, if it's mm-hmm. okay, Bonnie, just briefly. I think yeah, what, what, please. What, 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 what John's hitting on, and, and is the Kaplan and Norton methodology strategy maps, and there's all sorts of variations on it, and you know, it does, does have to be a Kaplan and Norton, the two you know, famous professors, but the key issue here is that there's been way too much emphasis on financial results, and actually what Kaplan and Norton really uh, proposed over a decade ago was, you know, you really need to shift your attention to non-financial measures that drive uh, sort of the consequence of managing, and if you will, aligning uh, those measures with, especially we using targets kind of as the incentive uh, for alignment, you know, then the financial results will take care of himself. Okay. Rob Jenkins, anything on that? Just, you know, at a little bit broader notion is this idea of what is performance management? What is strategic performance management? And can you and should you delineate uh, the vital few that measure strategy? Uh, in terms of performance measures, and, and those should be KPIs, as Gary talks about, key performance indicators, linked to strategy. And so this is certainly what we uh, preach, uh, and we're hopeful uh, that we're making progress. But I was with the CFO last week, and uh, 
he was very pointed about saying he prefers to measure things with dollar signs. And if it doesn't have a dollar sign, then uh, it's probably something that's not very uh, relevant to measure. And so there's a little bit of a mentality out there like that still. We think a lot of folks are moving on the spectrum. Certainly, balanced scorecarding has been around a long time. I'm not sure how many companies use it in a formal methodology, but there's a lot of great insight into having a balanced set of performance measures linked to strategy, for sure. Thank you. Gary, I want to circle back to one of your talking points uh, that we need to cover before we go to our break in about five or six minutes. You say, the, and this goes back to a thread through the conversation, the adoption rate for progressive practices such as activity-based costing and strategy maps has been slow and gradual. Now, here's, here's what I want to talk to you and the panel about. You say software technology is no longer the barrier. We established that already. But you say the impediments are social, cultural, and behavioral. So let's go back to what's holding them back. What's keeping that spread from laggard to leader, and why is it such a big spread? Why is it taking so long? So why don't you attack the social, cultural, and behavioral as you wish, and then we'll have John and Rob chime in, please. Yeah, just a, a little bit of background. I My first 10 years was in industry, and I'd say my schooling was industrial engineering and operations research, so I'm, I'm excited about uh, this data scientist movement. I graduated in 71. I wish it had happened then. But in uh, the second kind of middle third of my career, I was with uh, Deloitte and KPMG, and I had a chance in 1988 to be trained by Professor Kaplan on how to do activity-based costing. When I saw the first results, uh, of which many projects that followed, the costs were and profit margins were so wildly different from the belief system because of those broad allocations. I said, well, this is going to take off like a rocket. In the next five years, by mid-1990s, every organization on the planet Earth will have ABC. Well, they don't. But it's not a fatter fashion, and that's what led me to basically saying, what's going on here? And the software tools are clearly not the impediment. Um, Bonnie, uh, you know, just to give you the short list, part of it is resistance to change. It's human nature. Mm-hmm. People like the status quo. Some of it of is course. fear of knowing the truth. I can give you anecdotes about product managers who, when they saw that the profitability of their product, which was highest, was going to become lower because of the more accurate tracing. They killed the project. There's not wanting to be held accountable, not wanting to be measured, not wanting to be measured if you don't have some sort of involvement with who's going to be measuring you. I mean, these are all behavioral social issues, nothing to do mm-hmm. with technology. If that's the short list, I can't wait to have you send me the long list. Uh, John Essig, thoughts on the list yet Gary just shared? <laughs> no, I, I think... Uh, you know, I I really think it's been the last like year one one to two years where this this technology is becoming more available to the finance organizations. And when I say available, I mean from a cost perspective, right? You no longer need to, to hire teams and teams of consultants and data scientists to to come out and invest hugely in a project to to benefit from these tools. So I, you know, I I hope uh, I hope to prove Gary wrong. I hope in the next couple of years that that we see um, a significant adoption. Uh, within finance organizations, although it's going to be hard. It's going to be an up, uphill battle. They are, they are a, a risk-adverse group. But as we get you know, a, a few really strong use cases in place, as we get better at making the benefits that the finance organizations are going to be able to see measurable, um, then, I, then I think that adoption is going to pick up. John, how do you respond to Gary's comment, fear of the truth was on his list? I, my eyebrows just flew off the face at that point. Fear of the truth, my, and, and who, know, who else knows the truth, and what are you supposed to do with the truth? Any thoughts on that? And then, of course, Rob Jenkins will have you add on to that. John, fear of the truth? I, I'm just going to say, I'm, I'm not scared. <laughs> so bring, bring, it, bring it on, Gary. Let's, let's, let's figure it out. 
Oh, I love that. Rob Jenkins, we have to hear from you. Thoughts? Absolutely. So yeah, well, I think a lot of uh, the finance function folks would say, where's the ROI? They believe generally they have good enough information uh, to some extent. They believe they have good enough information to this day, and they can't really understand the ROI in a lot of detailed calculations. Of course, what we say is, in this new era of uh, computing power and software tools that have easy-to-use GUIs, it's actually not that much incremental work to get to a very accurate, uh, almost forensic view of product and customer profitability, and it's more than worth it in terms of the decisions you can actually make uh, to affect your business. But I think a lot of the reaction I see to the resistance, the reason is because they don't really understand the, uh, the ROI in the incremental effort to gather the data and to actually, you know, create an application configuration to actually do the assignments, et cetera, to create the profitability views. Thank you. I have to bring in a famous quote from Oscar Wilde that John Essig sent me as an alternate to the opening quote we used at the start of the show. I think this applies to the comment on fear of the truth. He says, Oscar Wilde said, experience is the name everyone gives to his mistakes. (laughs) Gary, you like that one? I love it. I do, too. Thank you, John Essig, for that. I'm about ready to go to break, but I could add on a minute here if anybody has anything, any thoughts to add to what we just covered. Anything else from John? Well, well, the, the, this is Gary. I mean, yeah. I asked about the social and cultural uh, mm-hmm. resistance, but there are some other ones that are maybe, some of them are technical issues. There is dirty data, uh, low-quality information, or disparate data sources, but that's being resolved somewhat by the technology uh, companies. Another is, I think, a perception, a false perception barrier that to implement these methods is just like overly complicated and theoretical and too difficult. And, and, and Rob alluded that if you do things like rapid prototyping and iterative remodeling or proof of concept, um, you discover that you know, these models don't have to be oversized and over-engineered. You can get from that good enough to uh, even better. Actually, part of that good enough is a perception that their numbers are good. So, so we do have some, I would call, perception barriers that uh, get in the way, and uh, th- those can really be resolved. I'm a big fan of rapid prototyping. Get quick results, 80-20 rules. You know, in management accounting, you don't have to get the numbers perfect. Financial accounting, you get the numbers wrong, you go to jail. Management accounting, you get the numbers <laughs> wrong, you don't go to jail. So, you know, it's not about, you know, regulatory stuff. You know, Good to thing, know. It, it, it's also okay, a okay. mind share issue in terms of, you know, mm-hmm. time is finite, obviously. And a lot of the folks, even in the FP&A function, uh, not, not accounting and compliance, but in FP&A, are actually fully absorbed in their own world of budgeting and, and forecasting. And where they do an annual budget, which perhaps takes six months to provision, and then you're doing a, certainly a monthly forecast in most cases. Um, in some cases, even you know two or three times a month reforecasting. And so there's so much emphasis on budgeting and forecasting that I think that you know profitability and the economic and strategic view of profitability, really understanding the 80/20 rule inside the company, which customers are making money and which ones aren't, and how do you manage the business to change behavior of customers so you can actually make them all profitable. A lot of that I think gets short shrift given uh, the attention span and the time uh, allocation over to the planning and uh, forecasting activities. 
Thank you. And guess what? You've predicted it correctly. We're going to go to our predictions round after a break. So I'm going to give Gary Kokins and John Essig and Rob Jenkins about 90 seconds to collect their thoughts. We're going to push out to 2019. Or if you love the idea that hindsight is 2020, guess what? It's only six years off into the horizon. We'll come back and talk about what would we be talking about if we all met again on the topic of predicting profitable performance and EPM, as somebody added, in challenging times. You never know in the next five or six years there could be even more challenging times. So don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. We'll be back with Gary Kokins, John Essig, and Rob Jenkins for the predictions round. I'm Bonnie D. Graham, taking a break. Michael out. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Unleash the leadership potential of your finance talent now. Your business needs more than just compliant reports. Today's leading finance departments are asked to support business decision-making to help companies to succeed. With SAP's risk and finance solutions, you can provide the advisory that decision-makers are looking for. No matter what data source, no matter where you are, you can find the information you need to add value. Give your finance talent the right tools to be up to the challenge. www.sap.com The time for enterprise mobility is now, according to IDC. By 2013, over 1.19 billion workers worldwide will be using mobile technology, comprising 34.9% of the workforce. The impact of mobility on business is clear. Increasing numbers of business users are expected to handle critical tasks and decision-making in real time, no matter where they are. SAP and Sybase and SAP Company offer mobile applications and underlying infrastructure with integration to SAP systems for secure access to business processes anytime anywhere and on any device www.sap.com from the boardroom to you voice america business network welcome back to financial excellence with game changers presented by sap comments questions send an email to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com and you're invited to tweet during and after the show at hashtag SAPRADIO now let's get back to financial excellence with Game Changers here we are and we're ready for our crystal ball predictions round but first I want to take a moment to thank whoever is tweeting at CFO Knowledge I think I know who you are capturing words of wisdom quoting Jonathan Essig and quoting Gary Kokins and quoting Rob Jenkins right here and we use the hashtag SAP Radio so if you want to see if you haven't caught the whole conversation on the show today live go to hashtag SAP Radio and see some of the words of wisdoms we have wisdom we have captured for posterity now it's time to go into posterity in terms of predictions. I know you have a lot to say, Gary Kokins. So why don't you take two big full minutes and give us what you see coming down the pike in the next five or six years on predicting profitable performance. Go ahead, Gary. Well, I think, you know, the way you posed the question, five or six years from now, what will we be talking about? I think one of the things we'll talk about is the bankruptcies of companies uh, that will have taken place. And I'm going to kind of put the dark side on this. 
Uh, yeah. Some of the older people in the audience may recognize the book In Search of Excellence, which gee, I'm sure it was written, I think, in the 1960s by Tom Peters, and they had this 25 companies that passed all these hurdles, but what people don't know is 10 of those companies have gone bankrupt or in big trouble. Examples, Omdahl, Cheeseboro Browns, Digital Equipment, Kmart, Kodak, Levi Strauss, Raycom, Revlon, Wang Lambs, and then more recently we've got Blockbuster and Borders, and I think the issue is going to be if these companies today don't basically rely on resting on their laurels and realize that they've got to not basically be adverse to risk, but realize each new day is a competitive one, they're going to have to get with it. And the adoption, I think, of analytics is really going to be the, the most significant competitive advantage. I think some of the Michael Porter generic strategies, you know, low-cost, low-cost provider um, uh, differentiation basically are too vulnerable. Uh, but briefly, if I had to give the second realistic uh, guess about the crystal ball, I think we're going to see, as Rob uh, alluded to the the gradual abandonment of the annual budget, the moving towards rolling financial forecasts that are going to be driver based and they're going to be based much more on more progressive economics uh, management accounting, which means classifying the behavior of the resources as sunk, fixed, step fixed, step variable, and so forth, which really is a more progressive you know move uh, because you do when you're, you're talking about the future, you've got to adjust for capacity. So I think the move towards rolling financial forecasts and more frequent inter because the forecast can be refreshed uh, will be what we'll be seeing. Okay, and while you were giving me your list of the dark side, as you said, Gary Kokins, I looked up In Search of Excellence and it was first published in. You ready? You want to give me date? What, you, what did you say originally? My, 60s? It could have been 1961. All right, I see here. It, according to Wikipedia, it was published in 1982. And it's yes, and it's one of the biggest selling business books ever. It sold over three million copies in the first four years. It's the most widely held library book in the United States from 1989 to 2006. Very interesting. Thank you very much for the good reference. Glad to bring a little trivia here into the show. And let's turn to John Essig. John, predict ahead. What do you think we'll be talking about five or six years? Go. Great. Thanks, Bonnie. So Mm -hmm. I'm I'm predicting that within the next five years, Gary will give me a call and tell me that I was right earlier. <laughs> <laughs> um, Gary, you've been put on notice. <laughs> Go ahead. No, but in all, in all seriousness, I, you know, I, I think the, the ease of use with, with some of these new technologies as it relates to big data and predictive analytics, you know, there, there is, there is going to be somewhat slow adoption, right? But I think you're going to see a fair amount of companies adopt this within the next five years as it can really, you know, increase the, the accuracy that they can bring to their planning and forecasting solution. You know, just, just to give you an example, um, you know, I think it was five months ago when I sat down with SAP and did a, you know, SAP provided me a two, three hour demo with some of their different predictive analytics tools. Literally within a, you know, within a, a day or two's time, we were able to take some historical data, use those tools, seed seed future data, um, and then and then model that against historical data sets and see how accurate it was. So, you know, I, I come from a finance background. I have my CPA. I'm not a data scientist, right? But these things that they're explaining to me made sense. The tool's easy to use, and it doesn't require a you know a huge investment. So, to mm-hmm. me, it's a you know, and I and I know it's not always quite so obvious, but to me, it's a no brainer. You know, if I can if I can look out at my forecast plan and instead of just applying some five percent growth rate and and applying that to the next year and saying that's my starting point 
reasonably effective, but not at all accurate. I can spend just a few days, you know, doing time series analysis, an easy-to-use tool, and having a much better starting point. Um, and, and you can also use that <clears throat> not just from a time series perspective, but to look at commodity pricing, to look at sales that are booking. So, you know, I, I think that in the next five years, we're going to see that the companies that, you know, have the vision to take advantage of this and invest a small amount in it are going to see some really great benefits, be able to manage their cash better, be able to manage their inventory better, manage their sales, you know, keep their, keep their expenses within reasonable, reasonable margins, right? So, um, so there you have it, Bonnie. That's, that's my prediction. Thank you, John. Great. Love the energy. And Rob Jenkins, I give you uh, about 90 seconds. Go. Absolutely. I think there's a new era of CFOs that are coming mm. up in the business that actually have embraced analytics and big data. And they understand that the technology is not a barrier. Uh, it's going to be in the cloud. It's going to be everywhere uh, all the time globally. Uh, and that there's, you know, data uh, is very diverse. It's got a ton of volume, obviously, but there's no more sampling required. Uh, You can use all the data. Uh, Again, no more technology barriers. I think a lot of the uh, former sort of generational CFOs are really 100% focused on, or at least primarily focused on compliance. Uh, And that's critically important, and you cannot mess that up. But there's a whole new era of CFOs. I believe we're going to be talking about the new era of CFOs that have taken analytics and applied it not only to finance processes, FP&A, accounting, finance, and close, treasury and risk management, payable supply chain, et cetera, but also have become true strategic business partners uh, working with CEOs uh, to make better decisions for competitive advantage. Thank you, Rob. Right on the money. I appreciate it. Guess what? I have my predictions, and they're easy. I wrote them down. Tomorrow's Tuesday. It must be HR Trends with Game Changers, <laughs> 9 a.m. Pacific. It's Wednesday, the day after. Well, that means it's day for Coffee Break with Game Changers at 8 a.m. Pacific. And you know the day after that is Thursday. Of course, that's Future of Business with Game Changers at 7 a.m. Pacific. And then we start all over again next Monday with Financial Excellence with Game Changers. Special thank you to my very smart and very forthcoming guest. Thank you for sharing your expertise and your passion for this topic. Gary Kokins, a pleasure. John Essig, a pleasure. Rob Jenkins, a pleasure as well. Great panel. Love the way you talk to each other and interface, and I love the challenges, too. Very interesting. And thank you again to our sponsors for the show, Chris Grundy, Aaron Hughes, Birgit Starmans at SAP, and Michael, our engineer in the Business Channel team at Voice America World Talk Radio. I'm Bonnie DeGram, and here's my call to action. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today. Talk to you tomorrow. It's Tuesday. You know what that is, HR Trends with Game Changers. Talk to you then. Have a great one. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Financial Excellence with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run business is run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to hashtag SAPRADIO and join host Bonnie D. Graham again next Monday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern, here on the Business Channel, wishing you a game-changing week.